I've always said to my staff that I'll never have you forever, but I like to think that you'll go away from here and be a better chef and go somewhere better than what I am. And it, ha and it has happened to me. To me, I like that because that means they're, they're advancing themselves in their career and they're going forward. Today on Dirty Linen, we are heading to the beautiful Southern Highlands of New South Wales to, to Barrel and Centennial Vineyards Restaurant where we find Chef Robin Murray. I wanted to chat to Robin because we were talking the other day about how he runs his kitchen and I just got the sense that he was passionate about skills and passing classic essential skills to the next generations. Robin, welcome to Dirty Linen. Hi, Danny. Nice to chat with you. It's so great to have you here. Um, I'd love you to start by telling us a bit about yourself. Tell us about your background as a chef. Well, um, obviously, listening to the accent, I'm not from this country, so, <laughs> but I've called Australia home for over 25 years, but hail from the uh, northeast of Scotland originally, um, small fishing village called Lossiemouth. It's basically situated between Aberdeen and Inverness. Um, lovely part of the world. Very cold in the winter, but stunning during the summer. Um, so that's where I grew up. I actually grew up in a family hotel. My parents were hoteliers. Uh, my grandparents. So I suppose it was just something that uh, the evolution of myself just continued on. Um, and over the years of working uh, in Scotland, in the UK, I came to Australia, as a lot of us backpackers do in our, in our day for a holiday, have a look around, but I'm still here. <laughs> um, met my lovely wife, she's Australian, so I'm not, I'm not an original story, but um, certainly uh, I am one of uh, many here in the country. But, you know, as chefs, uh, we're complicated kind of people. Uh, we're almost like uh, a round pizza that's put in a square box that when we're eating is triangular. So we, uh, you know, we look at things differently. And I suppose over the years in my career, I, um, you know, I've learned a lot, still I'm learning, but I found, uh, especially having the business here for nearly 18 years now, that um, the training we, well, we received as chefs, we've had to install into the next generation and the next generation of chefs here in Australia. It's the only way really that we can keep the art of cooking alive. Um, there certainly is programs out there through TAFE and college, etc. But I think working on the job is the most important way of actually learning and doing something. Uh, a simple example would be you know, you can read a recipe from a cookbook, but if you don't know how to do the method, well, the, you know, you may as well just keep reading the book <laughs> or get someone to make it for you, but that's the trouble. There's plenty of people or plenty of businesses that can't make it for you, but, well, you may as well just be another cog in the wheel then. Uh, and like I say, I think I'm a custodian of hospitality. I, what I've learned through the future, or so in the past, I've got to install into the guys for the future because um, at least one day I'd like to think I'm not going to be working in this kitchen anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I love this idea of being a custodian of those skills for, you know, for the future and I guess treasuring them and passing them on. I know that at Centennial you, you do your own lambs. So can you talk about the way that a lamb would get used in your restaurant and the way that that helps you impart skills? 
Well, I mean, it starts not just here at the restaurant. Um, we do take our guys out to the farm. When I say a farm, I'm not saying we're like running thousands of acres. I've, uh, I've, well, when I actually bought the property, I, I looked at the property next door, which was five acres, which I thought was going to be enough for me to grow some veggies and you know, maybe have a couple of alpacas or something, but uh, ended up getting 40 acres. And um, we've got all this land that I needed to manage. So I thought one of the, the best ways that we could utilize the land um, and you know utilize it for the restaurant was actually breeding sheep. So through another neighbor of mine, an old farmer, uh, fourth generation on my road actually, um, I started off with five. And uh, last year after having 14 sets of twins, uh, which that Super Ram is now on loan to uh, numerous uh, <laughs> other breeders. Um, <laughs> and I, I have son of Super Ram. Uh, he's on loan also, but um, we were up to nearly 50. So um, so we basically with the breeding program, this is where it actually begins for us as the chefs. Uh, we take, because we utilize a lot of our scrap uh, trim, carrot tops, etc., all that kind of things, you know, the outer leaves of cabbage, that kind of stuff. We use that for feed as well as, you know, obviously the pasture. Um, so um, we start from there. And then basically after a period of time, we, we do different stages. We have young lamb from about six months. And then I've taken it actually through to hoggett stage um, just to, you know, just to base experiments. I think, I mean, if you have used it in the past, but never bred it myself. So wanted to see how far I could take it. And then obviously after the abattoir, you know, um, hanging, the hanging process. I mean, if you think about oh, supermarket meat as such is basically killed and processed, whereas I like to hang mine between two and three weeks, um, which still, you know, some people think that's too long, but I, I think it improves the flavor. And then from the whole carcass, well, even before we actually butcher down the whole carcass, the first thing we actually do after it has been slaughtered is we make haggis because you know, being a Scotsman, it's something we love, but God forbid, forbid calling it haggis on your menu. So we like to call it, we like to call it spicy lamb. So, and uh, it's a little play on uh, a, a dish I used to do back in Scotland, which was called August balls, and uh, it's uh, no longer called haggis balls on that uh, old menu, but it's called haggis bites. But it comes from anyone that's out there knows what a British fish and chip shop is or a Scottish fish and chip shop is. You get a haggis supper, which is basically haggis in the shape of a sausage, deep fried in batter. And it was one of my favorite dishes as such, especially after a, a Friday night session. So I take I take this little haggis balls, which we make. I mean, it's very simple. It's, a, it's what they call the lights. It's the heart, the liver, and the lung, which is poached. Uh, I like to put some aromats in the, in the cooking liquor, you know, mirepoix, etc. And then that's minced. We mix that with onions that are cooked down in the lamb fat, some spices, being spiced pepper, a bit of uh, mace, nutmeg. Um, oatmeal, I like to splash some whiskey in there and then rather than stuffing it back into the stomach and then uh, you know poaching it, 
I actually like to do it in a cryback bag. So I've actually modernized the, the method as such yeah. of how I used to do it before. So, and then I steam it rather than poaching it. Then it, obviously the oatmeal swells, etc. And then from that, you know, we use it, whether it be a stuffing like a farce, we do it inside chicken, on top of chicken, like almost, almost like a chicken wellington, chicken haggis wellington. But the favorite one, and people do enjoy it, but just don't call it haggis, is uh, little balls deep fried in beer batter. And I just serve it with a little grain mustard mayonnaise. So That would go off. And you, you, you wouldn't call it haggis. You wouldn't call it lamb, heart, liver, lung. But if you call it <laughs> spicy balls and you beer batter it, yeah, get it into me. <laughs> that, that's ex- exactly. So the process actually starts from there, and then we, we butcher down um, the whole lamb. Um, you know, shoulders, slow-cooked, shanks, slow-cooked, hind. Uh, generally, I'll either dice it for a, like a Lancashire hot pot or curry, etc. Uh, all the trim, minced, kofters, kibbe, uh, shepherd's pie, um, anything you can do with mince, lamb burger, um, the fat we render down for uh, rather than duck fat roasted potatoes, it's lamb fat roasted potatoes. And uh, I mean, it's all free. Well, it's not free because obviously you're breeding and you process of it all, but it's it's product, it's byproduct, and you, you, you want to utilize. To be honest with you, I, I think it's only giving the animal respect that it gave you for giving its life to you. So I even have a customer of mine, believe it or not, Scottish, <laughs> it makes uh, drums. And he was using kangaroo skin, but he's now experimenting with some lamb skin. So it'll be interesting to see actually how it works out once he tans it. So, and obviously, you know, and we do a program of uh, uh, a series of dinners. You know, generally, you know, once I do a slaughter, we call it either breaking down the beast or I call it the butcher's cut. And it's like a degustation dinner, and it's basically using everything of the lamb, apart from a dessert, obviously, which we use our own honey. But, uh, you know, even the bread rolls, like uh, we back home, we have a, a roll called a, a buttery or the Aberdeen Rowie, and it's basically a, a salty version of a croissant, lots of lard or butter in there, but I actually make it with the lamb fat. So, like, little things, and I think that's where the evolution of your own career or places you've worked or... Might, what you might have even read or watched, where you draw inspiration from that and, and take the idea from it. So, um, uh, like we do things like lamb three ways that change. So it's a loin, or a little crumb cutlet, or let's say a little hot pot, or even a baby eggplant uh, moussaka. You know, so it changes all the time. And and with that, I think what it does it stimulates not only yourself but it stimulates your own chefs around you to actually be creative. Like, I've, I, I have a head chef who's Lebanese background, so that's why we lean towards, like, kibbe or, you know, or the, uh, the kofta idea sort of thing. And, uh, you know, so it gives, them, it gives them the freedom as such, but at the same time, they're learning, especially butchering down, because, I mean, yes, we, you know, in the old days when you worked in a five-star hotel or whatever, we had our own butchery department or fish department. Well, now it's all, you just buy it. And you're not even buying it in whole. Now you're actually buying it portioned. So the, that's just where the art of cooking is, is dying as such. So like I say, I am a custodian. I have to keep this going. And there's, there's a few of us around, but we're, uh, we're starting to get older. So we need to uh, get the next generation involved in this to help us out. So, I mean, 
I can only imagine, that, you know, how stimulating it must be to be able to break down a lamb beside you and go through all those different um, processes to come out with all those different dishes. As you say, there's there's that respect. It'd be impossible to be a chef in your kitchen and not, you know, have a have a respect for that animal that you know you've seen in the paddock, and then you're you're doing all these different things with it. But it's also such you're building such a suite of skills. Um, I mean, you talk about the de-skilling of the industry and the fact that so many people are buying in products. What do you, I mean, what, what do you think the state of the industry is and where is it going? Look, uh, it's not healthy. I can tell you that right now. It's certainly not healthy. I know as a business owner, not just a chef, but a business owner, um, since COVID, I mean, even prior to COVID, um, the skill shortage is just huge. Like, I mean, huge. I, I mean, it's even like of last year during lockdown or when we got reopened, I mean, JobKeeper was a godsend for, you know, most of all hospitality businesses. But at the same time, it was like a double-edged sword for us. I couldn't get a kitchen hand. Why would you go and work doing dishes when you could get seven fifty or five fifty from the government? You know, so, I mean, just prior to this conversation, I've just done my own dishes. Uh, just done an hour of wash, washing up. And that was after peeling the 100 eggs for the high fee tomorrow. So, you know, um, I'm still on the tools. And I mean, don't get wrong, I, I love my industry. I, I, I love what I do. I just need more people around me like me. Um, but it, it will take a lot more training. But the trouble is, uh, I think COVID has really knocked um, hospitality in the head on the sense of that people have left the industry too, and good people as well. People at a level where they could have, you know, um, uh, be, you know, in command or you know, commanding good money, but they've decided to leave because you know they're going Monday to Friday. And I can understand. I mean, I'm a father of children, and you know, weekends is you know obviously the busiest time for most hospitality businesses. That that's when we need you. But people are deciding, no, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm going to spend quality time with my children, or so on. So. What it does is that's now put, you know shorted again um, on the industry. And plus, we you know, obviously we can't get anyone from overseas um, here. I mean, even a knock-on effect, not just the chefing side of things. I mean, just getting someone to pick pick something off a farm, you know, pick something off a tree uh, out the ground, you know. So, which again pushes the prices up. It puts strain on business, um, you know. So. Where do I see it going? I'd like to think that, you know, as a collective group in hospitality, and I suppose I sit on the board of the Australian Culinary Federation, and, you know, we have a big push, same thing for keeping, you know, the uh, the, the industry stimulated with keeping, you know, chefs in the industry and training the next generation to come through. And that's done through programs, whether it be competitions um, or even workshops all that side of things, just even just mentoring. We actually have a youth mentoring um, scheme in place, and uh, even it helps, you know. And it's and it's headed up by a, a, a junior, you know. Well, we have senior support, but you know, there's a, a, a junior. I mean, well, when I say junior, it's half my age, but you know. Um, but these guys need to be talking to their guys too. So there's member when you're old, like us, funny daddies, like you know. Sometimes they don't listen to us, but. Um, and I think, look, if we if we can keep it if we can keep it 
fun. You know, I guess it's a serious business, but you know, we need to keep it fun as well. Of like you say, the learning side of things. You know, I I believe you know I do it with my guys. You know, we all know how to make pasta. We all know how to make you know a meringue or Italian meringue, or you know we we're playing around now at the moment you know, with the aquafaba because veganism is a big thing. So, you know, we're looking at different ways of, you know, to, uh, I suppose, spice up, you know, the, the, the vegetarian or veganism side of things. And, um, you know, just so it's not like a same old boring, boring stuff that you get or what you could make at home. That's the other side of it. So, you know, playing around with that kind of stuff does stimulate them, especially young ones. So, and then you like to think that, you know, they'll come up to you and then say, hey, what do you think about this? So, fingers crossed, Danny. That's all we can do is fingers crossed. Because mm. I guess when you're training people for an industry that you believe in, I mean, of course, you want them to stay with you and, you know, squeeze out every last bit of knowledge that they can get with you. But, of course, there are lots of business clamoring for staff. Is it is that a bit of a, is that an issue for you as well? It is. I mean, I find, I have found over the, the years here, and um, I've always said to my staff, I'll never have you forever. But I like to think that you'll go away from here and be a better chef and go somewhere better than what I am. And it, it, has, and it has happened to me. Um, I've had some good staff come through. Don't get me wrong, I've had some bad staff as well. But I've had some good staff that have gone on to international careers um, I even had one just recently, or well, last end of last year, uh, uh, be a competitor on MasterChef Professionals UK. So that, to me, I like that because that means they're they're advancing themselves in their career and then going forward. So I suppose I'm a bit of a realist in the sense that, yes, you know, I'll never have I'll never have the sous chef that I when I started my industry that worked in the same job all his life. I'll never have that. But I find that mm. what happens with me, and it does get a bit frustrating, is if I get two or three years out of them and they go and move somewhere else and even locally, but then, you know, after me installing a lot of work into them, but then you look at the menu and it's the same as what I do. It's the same as what we've done. And it's like, I don't find that. That's, I just find that's like you're just a robot then, you know, why don't you come up with your own ideas or you know, maybe take something? I'm, I'm not original, don't get me wrong. Why don't you go and maybe do a little tweak on what we did here? You know, but that, that's the frustrating side of things. But I, like I say, I'm a realist. I, I have to know that, well, I do realise that they won't be with me for a long time. So it's a revolving door. Mm. But I guess you would hope that you're not teaching them dishes as such, but you're teaching them the building blocks where they can create their own menus and create their own dishes with those skills and, um, yeah, the building blocks that you've given them. Um, what about, I mean, there's obviously different, there's different areas of the industry. You know, there's cafes, there's clubs, there's pubs, there's restaurants such as yourself where you do everything from scratch. How do you see these different layers of the industry? Look, um, it's funny. I mean, I again, going back to the Australian Culinary Federation, I sit on the board with uh, different different chefs um, from different backgrounds, like from pubs and clubs and you know, from restaurants, high-end to low-end, and then cafes. I mean, here in the Southern Highlands, we have a huge, I mean, when I say huge, I mean a huge coffee culture here. We have more cafes than you can poke a stick at. And I'm one of many few restaurants actually are a restaurant 
the dance an a la carte menu. Um, and a proper a la carte menu at that. So, you know, but, you know, clubs, for example, as I said to a customer once when he had his nice rack of lamb at $35, which probably cost me more than that to put in a plate, but that's all I charge him because he's, you know, an ex-golfing buddy of mine that he said to me, you know, I could, I, I could go down the RSL. And I said, Harry, stop right there. I said, when I've got 300 poking machines, you can dine here for nothing. So that's the difference. You know, um, New South Wales mm-hmm. is a bit different to Victoria as such, whereas, you know, the, the poking machine revenue is huge. I mean, our local club alone is massive. Um, its pokey revenue is something like, uh, I think it's net $17 million a year, something like that. So, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd love that revenue in my restaurant, but uh, like I say, it take a few poker machines. But So it's, the difference is, and I suppose over the years now, and, and I know the clubs are doing a big push for in-house training, which is good, um, and they are pulling away, well, not all of them, but I know even our local club had a bit of a revamp couple of years ago and they've introduced I suppose not your standard club fair and all that stuff so um, which is good but again it's I suppose the they have the the when you're you know a company or a club like that such the you know the, the revenue funding behind it uh, is, is 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 big you know it's like a big five-star hotel it's uh, you know it's focused on food that might have their own culinary academy I'm not sure if Sofitel and Melbourne still do their, their one, but, you know, that was something that was introduced many years ago by a friend of mine. But um, that, that was a reason, and that was a way of actually trying to, you know, train staff as such um, to keep them in the industry. Mm, I suspect that friend is Raymond Capaldi. Would I be right? He is, yes, he is. So, <laughs> I mean, I, I, myself and Raymond go back many years, but um, he's, again, uh, he's a very, very passionate chef. And he he understood, I suppose, at an early stage, we're going back to uh, mid to late 90s, that unless something was done about the industry, about training and all that, uh, that it would be, you know, down the track, it would be affected. Well, down the track is here now. And, um, you know, so, and bet if, you know, that academy, you know, and Sofitel itself at that day and not that time produced some great chefs that have gone on to do some fantastic stuff uh, here in Australia, if not worldwide. So I suppose if you plant the seeds, you know, I think something will grow. And I think that's the stage we're at. Again, we need to, um, as a body, national body, whatever organisation it is, whether it be AHA or Restaurant Caterers or Australian Culinary Federation or, you know, TAFE, I think as a collective group, we need to come together and make some sort of decisions of, um, well, how the industry will go. But obviously, government comes into play, you know, so the, do you, is it a wage thing? Is it a skill shortage thing? I mean, you know, you, mm. can, you can go to TAFE and uh, do a short course and come out as a qualified chef. And as a business owner, you have to pay them as a qualified chef, but don't ask them to fill a fish. God. So, Robin, let's just say PM Scott Morrison invites you to a meeting and, you know, about the state of the hospitality industry and he wants to know, you know, man in the street, 
uh, well, man in parliament anyway. <laughs> I'm sure he's a man in the street occasionally. Uh, why does it actually matter if um, there is this uh, erosion of skills in the industry? Why does it matter if a chef can't fillet a fish? Can't they just buy it in portioned? What is actually the problem? Well, look, I mean, yes, certainly you can. You can buy it in portioned and, you know, that will actually, I mean, your fishmonger is going to benefit from that, which the government are going to benefit from that because obviously being a portioned fish is going to incur GST or, you know, so someone's going to benefit from it there, but the industry won't. I mean, but I'd say, I mean, if, you, if you're a normal Joe Blow, like, I mean, say as much as we like, a, you know, have a nice cheap meal or whatever, but would you go out? I mean, I don't mind paying for a good meal. Don't be wrong. Like, I, you know, when I can, I will. Um but I think the normal Joe Blow, and this is what you've got to think about too, is you know that the, the normal man that goes out dining and such is he going? Is he willing to pay that extra ten dollars for that dish, or you know, because it's filleted in house and stuff? Well, yes, I know. I mean, it's a tricky one, but um, but if we don't have the skills at the end of the day, we're going to lose the industry. I mean, we're just going to become a an industry of fast food, um, or they're going to be processed. Um, then what's going to happen? Kids are going to be eating this processed food, or we'll be eating it, and then our health declines. Oh, that's, that's what the studies say, that, you know, the junk food is bad for you, etc. So, So then, you know, it puts a strain on the health system. So I suppose it's like you've got to kind of look at it that way, and it's like a full circle of, well, something's got to, something's got to give it at some time, you know, at some stage, so I suppose going back to should we learn how to fillet fish and well, yes. Uh, I agree. I mean, you don't have to sell me, but as your as your prime minister, I I now understand. And um, yeah, you know, just think of it like fish is good. To, you know, to, to take the, the the burden off of the health system down down the down the track. Or else, maybe we'll just get uh, something processed out the freezer. You know, why not? Yeah, I mean, food is so much more than, uh, yeah, just being able to get the calories to get through the next bit of the day, isn't it? I mean, it's about culture. It's about um, diversity as well. I mean, I think if the foods, if we eat more food that's uh, processed in, you know, central locations, then menus bland out a bit. We don't get as much um, exciting food. We, yeah, the industry doesn't progress. And we also get people who aren't, don't have as interesting jobs. They're not as stimulated. They're not as excited. They leave the industry. And, you know, I suppose that just contributes to the same erosion, that same cycle. So, yeah, I think um, there's, yeah, there's definitely, I mean, there's endless arguments for investing in the industry, but you've got to have the people that want to come into it to be invested in. And I think what you were saying before about people who've gone through COVID and they've decided, you know, they, they want a bit more of the Monday to Friday, that is a really tricky one to solve. Yeah, I mean, I think what the next big thing will be, and then there will be people still stay in the industry, but it'll be a different a different job for them. I think food service, which already is big in this country, um, but it'll become even bigger again. But I think what will happen in the food service industry is that um, I think the quality is going to go up because I think there's going to be better chefs or people that understand taste or flavour or, you know, rather than your stock standard, well, I don't know, I don't buy it. So, uh, you know, I know you can buy stocks and sauces and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but uh uh, like if you go to the supermarket or something, you can buy a chicken Kiev, you know, ready crumbed stuffed, you know, well, I mean, 
you might get a chef that might take the concept of that chicken care. You might get someone like me just selling my uh, my uh, haggis top chicken wrapped in you know, puff pastry, you know, to that side of things. But that's uh, I think that food service side of things will grow um, because the demand is going to be there from you know, middle of road restaurants um, that are not a pub or a club or that want to do something different. So um, they're, they're looking for that product, but they don't have the skill to do it in house, if you know what I mean. So, um, so we are always looking for quirky things. I suppose I'm a bit of a traditionalist as such. I mean, I, I know what my clientele are here at the restaurant. Um, you know, they, they like traditional food. They like, I mean, don't get wrong, I can trick things up a little bit, you know, make it a different shape or whatever. I can do a, you know, a fancy kind of sauce. But I, I know at the moment, like, I have a cider braised pork belly in the menu with cabbage and bacon, crispy crackling, caramelized apples. I mean, I'm not, I'm not reinventing a wheel or anything here, but it's my biggest seller, you know, um, because mm-hmm. pe- people, won't, people won't physically make that at home. Especially if it's just two of you or three of you, you know, or, you know, I know even my children, uh, it's like a la carte kitchen at home because one doesn't like to eat meat, whereas the other one loves to eat the meat. So, <laughs> you know, uh, so like if I went and did a, a, a whole pork belly at home, well, I'd be eating it myself, you know, so that's the thing. So it's a bit of a treat. It's like, it's like doing beef cheeks, you know, who would go and... Well, there is a good home cooks, trust me, I know them, like, and they, like, they, they love cooking at home. Um, and they'll take that beef cheek and marinate it in red wine and all that stuff for three or four days and then slow cook it overnight in the oven and then, oh, beautiful. I'm like, I'm salivating just thinking about it. But most people wouldn't, most, most people wouldn't do that. But whereas they come to me, again, it's one of my biggest sales, especially this time of year too, you know, autumn, winter. But I mean, I could put beef cheeks on the menu at summertime and it would still sell. That's the thing. So. Mm. Well, you've done you've done all the hard work for us, and I think that's yeah, definitely people go to restaurants for things that they couldn't or just perhaps wouldn't make at home. Um, Robin, one of the ways that people skill up and preserve skills is through competitions. Can you tell us about um, the Culinary Olympics? Look, I mean, uh, it's funny enough, lot of, not a lot of people know this, but every country is involved in the uh, in the or has a, 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 a accredited um, a federation. So Australia's the Australian Culinary Federation, which is part of WACS, which is W-A-C-C-S, which is Wild Association, Wild Association of Cook Chef Society. And that's the that's the world body of um, I suppose our industry. But through that, they actually have um, competitions. Now, competitions uh, in their own countries, as well as every other country. So, for example, uh, London or you know, UK has uh, Hotel Olympia in London. Uh, Scotland has uh, well, it used to be Scott Hot um, in Glasgow. Uh, Singapore has their own one. I mean, and then but in Germany is they actually every four years, like the Olympics, we have a culinary Olympics. So, and every country that's involved. Um, in wax, actually puts a team forward. So I was lucky enough to be involved in that team well, 20 odd years ago now with some great chefs. Um, and then we still have colored teams. We have a senior team and we have a junior team, um, you know, in the train, um, you know, competitions. Now you're talking live kitchen, which is cooking live. Um, then you have what they call cold kitchen. So whether it be a showpiece, 
could be made out of margarine, chocolates, pastillage, sugar, um, obviously buffet. Uh, so, you know, looking at uh, like old school, what you, you would see in an old school hotel buffet, you know, all uh, chauffeured, which is like glazed, um, that sort of things. Uh, on main dessert, so like three course, could have be a series of desserts. So all different, what you would have, I suppose, in a, in a restaurant, but in a competition sense. So, so like I say, I was lucky enough to be involved in, and I've done a few competitions in my time, um, which I've won some medals for, like, which is good. Well, the thing is, uh, you have to be extremely dedicated to doing it because you don't get paid for it. <laughs> it's, it's a love, it's a love of the industry. Uh, and it's uh, and if you're holding in a full-time job, uh, you, you're you're training generally training during the night or, or or a day off as such. So, but the rewards is you know it's immense. I can you know name some chefs that have done very well um, out of competition. Um, have you got a, a competition dish that you did that you just look back on and you're like, yep, yeah, I really nailed that one. You know, it's funny. I did a dish. It was a play on words, and it was a cannelloni of goat's cheese and uh, capsicum. Now, the capsicum was the pasta, so red pasta. It's a play and the colours and all that as well. Um, and, uh, you know, basically roasted it, scraped it, and then uh, squared it off, then wrapped it you know, around some goat's cheese log, you know. It's like it's a little entree, a little black olive top, and a little fennel salad under I'm trying to I picture it in my head. But what I liked about it was I made a potato string. So, you know, you get the Chinese mandolin or it's actually a, a spiralizer, that's what they call them. Um and then made a potato string and then drew a circle um, well, it was just like a spiral on a piece of paper and then dipped that piece of potato string in butter and then followed the line of the spiral and then on top of greaseproof paper and then put another piece of greaseproof paper on top and then uh, baked it. So it was flat. when it was, So it went crispy. It was flat, but... When you picked it up from the top, it actually sprung out like a spring. Oh, great! <laughs> so, at the end of the day, it was just a it's just a string of potato, but it was uh, you know taking something, I suppose, ordinary, but just creating a bit of a three three dimensional you know with it sort of thing. So, that that kind of springs to mind. Boom, boom. Um, I love it. You know, uh, <laughs> you know, we do one which I did. We called it the tasting slate. Now, before slates kind of got trendy and all that stuff. I remember competing where I was working somewhere. <laughs> I'm not going to mention it, but um, they had, had done a renovation and all the, the old Welsh slate had come off the roof. So I managed to acquire some of the slate. And um, what I do, so rather than calling it a tasting plate, I call it the tasting slate. Uh, and then when it's eaten, the slate is clean. So, um, you know, I do five little items on there, and I did that for a competition. And it was like almost like five little canopies as such. But, you know, utilising trim. Um, well, for the competition, it wasn't. It was utilising. Uh, it was a theme as such. So it was Australian produce. So, you know, from a little you know, a little yabby tea in a soup shot glass to, you know. So you kind of look at things differently using you know, plastic tube for a mould or, you know, so 
Um, gives it, it's a bit of theatre. We're not like yeah. not reinventing the wheel. You know, it might still be tuna tartar, but we just put it in a different shape. Or you know, it's funny. I've been. I love food, um, and 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 I love all different nationalities of food. And I was actually we had a big wedding here oh, a few weeks ago, and. Um, I wanted to pick up some supply from an Indian store for it. So I wanted to try and be as authentic as I could sort of thing. And look, to be honest, I mean, when you're, when you're in the country, you, you haven't got the, uh, the, the beauty of going down, you know, some street in the city and, you know, picking up, you know, a, a, a style of food from, you know, some sort of country. But, so I end up, I took a drive to Canberra, which is only about an hour and a bit from us. And uh, I Googled up. Indian wholesaler. So anyway, I found them. So there's a whole like strip of them. So, and then in there, I picked up a few spices, all that kind of stuff. But I got these um, little puris. Anyway, I bought all different ones, and they're generally used for fasting, Ramadan, and all that stuff. It's a little snack to keep you going. You deep fry them. And I've got these puris. Oh, I've still got a packet of the other puris because you get the chili one. I've got a green chili one, you know, different colours too. So you're thinking it's a nice little crisp garnish to go on something. And I fry up these puris. They set up the other ones. They're like shaped like a football. But when they're fried up, they're actually puffed up like a golf ball. And they stayed like a golf ball. And I was like, that's cool. It's like, and to me, that was like my highlight. It's <laughs> the highlight of the day. And that was a little garnish. I, uh, um, I can't remember what I put on. I think I'd done a little um, trim from the pork belly or something, rolled it up, you know, spiced it up, rolled it up like a little nougatine and sliced it in, in a little chutney on top. And then this little round golf ball, which is a puri. And even the customer's going, what is it? Like, it's like, it's a puri. They go, what's a puri? It's like, well, it's like this little snack that you get. It's Indian. So, so I think it's funny. Like, it's just, I'm smiling just thinking about it because it, it excites me. And I think that's... That's something that you've got to try and instill into your staff and that as well. You know, you look outside the square as such, you know. Yeah. Well, Robin, you've you've beautifully brought us full circle because um, we started talking about the way that you're inspiring your staff and we finished by talking about the way that an incidental discovery re-inspired you. So I think it's I think we, we do see with food that you, you never stop learning. If you're open to new experiences and there's always something to take, um, there's always something you can learn, um, yeah, every, every single day. Um, it's, yeah. It's it's been so wonderful to have you on the show and to to yeah to hear um hear about you know what you what you bring from your wealth of experience. I think the people that work with you in your kitchen and on on the farm are very lucky. So thanks for doing what you're doing for the industry. It's been amazing to have you on Dirty Linen. I think if we can inspire anyone to just keep going, especially us old dog chefs. Don't worry, boys. We're on uh, girls. You know, you know there's there's. Uh, there's an end in sight for us, and you know, just keep going. Doesn't matter if you have to wash your dishes yourself, but uh, <laughs> you know, at, at the end of the day, we do it for the love of it, sort of thing, and hopefully, we'll inspire someone down the track. Brilliant! Thanks so much, Robin. Thanks, Danny. Take care. This is Dirty Linen, and I'm Danny Valant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about. We spend a week thrashing around each issue, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta 
at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This is